0: Again, I'll be looking at Jude, uh, chapter, only chapter, uh, verses three and four. I'll be reading, but really looking at verse four this morning. Now, this morning's message is a a serious message—a message that's not necessarily uplifting, but it's the reality of the way things are. November eighteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, might not be a date that's etched, etched in your memory unless it happens to be your birthday day or some major event. But for most people, it's uh, one of those days. It's like, gee, what what happened? What happened on that day? Okay. But what happened on that day was the largest loss of civilian life up until nine eleven. Not just civilian, but say U.S. civilians, Americans the largest loss of American lives up until 9-11. What happened? Over 900 people died. And they made decisions that set the direction for their lives that they really didn't know what they were doing. They, they thought they did. They didn't set out to walk a certain path, live a certain life that would actually end up in their death. Their deaths. What happened? They met a certain pastor. We'll call him James. And James was a Pentecostal preacher. Very charismatic in in the attitudinal sense. By that I mean. He preached the word and people listened. Pastor James was kind of fed up with segregated America. He wanted an integrated church. He wanted a church that would. Seriously love one another. He was preaching at small churches in Indiana. First church he pastored himself was in Indianapolis. It's one he planted and people began flocking. It was a truly integrated church. And in that time in the Midwest, there weren't a lot of those churches that were integrated where people from all cultures could be together for the glory of God. And so it attracted a lot of attention. And the more he preached, the more the church grew. And Pastor James grew in popularity, even nationally. And Indianapolis just wasn't working out well for him. People were hard-headed. The existing churches were hard-headed. He was meeting media, media resistance there. So he convinced his church to move to California. Uh, recently, there had been a, at that time, there had been an article, I don't know if it was Newsweek or Time or something, That said that in the event of nuclear war, there was one valley, a rural valley in California that was, would be the best one to survive in, in the event of a nuclear war. So that kind of attracted his attention. So the church moved out there in a rural area, began farming, and he told people, if you'll just, if you'll just come out here, we'll take care of you. Of course, he expected some donations. But he did indeed take, take care of them but the rural area was a bit confining for him so he ended up moving the church to san francisco and it's in san francisco that the church just kind of exploded in that environment and in fact he was so popular that he would go on speaking engagements nationally and he would he would arrange for buses to be at those those um speaking engagements so that they could take people from there to California to join the movement. And indeed, people did just that. Sold everything, moved, and he promised to take care of everything for them. They would just give him what they had. And he did. He helped people. He's very socially activated. So this this church helped people uh, who were on drugs. They helped people who needed legal help. They helped people who needed food. or And, and it just became like a magnet drawing people in. But the larger the church became, it, it became apparent that there were problems within that church. There began rumors and investigative reporters started looking into the church. They found accusations of abuse happening within the church. And financial uh, mis- misdirections that were going on. Some things are very unfavorable with Pastor James. And when he heard there was a major story getting ready to be printed in one of San Francisco's newspapers, he decided the church really couldn't survive that very well. So he convinced, or he invited people to come with him to Guyana. The the church had recently bought property there to farm and to take care of people um, to be like a utopia. So he decided to move the church from San Francisco to Guyana, South America, the only English-speaking country in South America, and about a thousand people decided to do that. Mm-hmm. Reports began coming back from certain family members that, of the ones who were there that they were not permitted to leave. This got wor- this got through to a congressman, and that congressman decided to go down there to investigate to see if people really were there by their own free will and cognition. So he and a small group of those who went with him went down on a small plane and they went to Guyana and they investigated. They went to this village that had been built out in the remote jungle. And at first everything seemed okay. But then the congressman began getting notes and people began being brave enough to come to him to say, can, can we leave with you? Can can you get us on the plane back? And so much so that it's reported that he even needed to arrange another aircraft to get everybody. So their departure was delayed a little bit. All the while, someone came to him and said, your life's in danger. And he said, I'm a United States congressman. I'm protected by the shield of being a congressman. So, as they waited for the plane, they waited to board the planes. He and his party, and a few others who were brave enough to leave in broad daylight, as they were getting ready to board the plane, some men showed up in a pickup truck. They were hiding in the back, and they ended up gunning down everybody in those planes, including the congressman. At this point, Pastor James knows that he's not going to get away with what he what has just happened. And so he brings the group together into the big pavilion that they had. And he told them that now was the time to enact the plan they had practiced on several occasions earlier. He had planned for them to make a great escape. That's what he told them. He had planned for them to all die. And he had planned this many times, well in the past. He had purchased large amounts of cyanide, had that mixed with fruit punch, Kool-Aid, and other things. And the people were instructed to drink it. They actually had done this in the past. He told them they were going to do this. And they had done it. But he hadn't put the cyanide in it. And he had told them it was a test of loyalty. To see who was really loyal. But this was no test. This was the real deal. And almost all the adults. Willingly drank the Kool-Aid. And went to the desk. The few that decided they didn't want to do that. Tried to escape or shot. Jim Jones himself. died of a gunshot wound probably self inflicted What happened? Nobody intends to join a cult. Nobody sets out to destroy their lives by being associated with a particular group. What happened? They were fooled by someone who looked like a legitimate Christian teacher but wasn't. He was really a wolf in sheep's clothing. That is perhaps an extreme example of what we're going to talk about today, but that same danger lurks within the church today, and we see that in Jude. Am I read for you, Jude, verses three and four? Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So in this verse, Jude gives us four identifying characteristics of false Christians, false teachers, what we're going to call spiritual creepers, so that you will be on guard and that you will contend earnestly for the faith. Jude says there that they crept in they came unnoticed the the first identifying characteristic is is that you are to note the craftiness of these creepers right jude uses the wording there he says they have crept in unnoticed so what do you call people who creep in creepers i'm calling them creepers right to get that into your head they are creepers jude is telling us to earnestly contend for the faith why jude why why not just give us that nice positive message you were talking about? Well, he tells us in verse 4, look at how the word be, the sentence begins, verse 4 begins with for. The word for, there's a connection. It's showing us the purpose, the reason for the for his urging in verse 3. Jude explains that it is necessary to contend for the faith because certain persons have crept in unnoticed. What is he, what does he mean by that? Well, first I want you to, to notice the description, certain persons, right? So Judas is writing to Christians. We've established that. We saw it in the verses. You can see that in, in verse 1, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, kept for Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, he calls them beloved. He's writing to Christians, genuine Christians. So then he identifies in verse 4, certain persons, right? So that, that phrase, certain persons, means that they indicate that they are outside of the group that he's writing to. They are outside of of the uh, we call it the invisible church. They are not part of the invisible church. They have not been born again. they are not converted they are not beloved by god the by God the Father. They are not kept for Jesus Christ. so they are outside of that group and, and notice what these certain persons have done. Now Jude may have known the names of these people, but he writes in such a way to give us a generic way to approach this because this is a timeless situation i say timeless these people will always be among us until the lord returns to set everything right notice what they've done for certain persons have done what they have crept in they have crept in and and the word crept in is a translation of a of a compound uh, greek phrase it's only used here in Jude, it really means to sneak in stealthily, right? to come in in such a way where you sneak in. Now, keep in mind, Jude's not talking about a physical building like we're gathered in here. It's not as if people had kind of snuck in the back during the church meeting when somebody wasn't looking. You know, don't we have somebody posted there? It's not like the idea that, that someone came in to a physical building. He's, he's talking about snuck in to the church. And the church really is not the building, it's the people. there certain people have crept in among your number. They're not part of your number, but they've crept in. And, and you haven't noticed. You haven't noticed. And he says this is, he says they're unnoticed. You know, we tend to think, I say we, including me, myself in this. I mean, and You need to put yourself here. We tend to think of ourselves as being wise and smarter, wiser and smarter than we actually are. We think that we would recognize one of these guys when we meet him. Now, if you saw a picture of Jim Jones, especially in his latter years, you would look like, that guy looks like a creep. Why would you trust him? But I'm telling you, he didn't look like a creep when all this started. I have met people who are guilty of heinous crimes, and I can tell you that I would not pick them out of a lineup as being guilty of those things. We're just not that smart. God knows the heart, and so we need to trust his word. When he says that they have crept in unnoticed, we need to recognize that, that that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in. People have crept in who are not Christians, but they have crept in as Christians in order to do mischievous deeds. And really the intent of this sneakiness is to do harm. That's, that's the implication that Jude is, is uh, giving us. Unbelievers have come among, come in within the ranks, disguising themselves as believers. Now, the verb tense that, used, that, that Jude uses is in the past tense. He's not warning us of something that is yet to come. Paul does that when he's talking to the elders at Ephesus. He says, be on guard for yourselves and the flock, for even among your own selves men will arise to lead the flock astray. Okay, so there is Paul's prophesying about the future. He's saying, even though he had poured his life into these elders of the church at Ephesus, that even amongst them, maybe not those, but future elders, would turn away from the truth and would seek to lead the body of Christ away from Christ, and would seek to destroy the body of Christ. Second Peter has a lot of similarities to Jude. I've already mentioned that, but but in in Second uh, Peter. Peter's still kind of looking at this as a future. It's not that the false teachers weren't there, but the massive flood of false teachers must not have been there yet. Jude, they're they're here. The present. Now, what do you gotta do? And and so really the takeaway for us is realize that Judah is a book for us. It's a book that's often ignored. Uh we've met, I've mentioned that before. It's a book that people don't turn to. It's not exactly an edifying book. It's not a um But it is a book we very much need to hear. Creepers are among us today. And they look much like us. They talk much like us. They live much like us. Not totally as we'll see. But if you contend earnestly for the faith. You will find yourselves in opposition with people. Who claim to be Christians. And so you just need to recognize right here from Jude that as we contend for the faith we're going to we're going to end up opposing people who say that they're Christians. They're going to use words like something like oh don't you judge me you have no right to judge me you know judge not lest you be judged. They they start talking about how they believe Christ and love Christ but there's something wrong. You know long before People knew that Jim Jones was as bad as he was. He gave indications that he was really bad. Remember, there's all his accusations that started the circles. People didn't want to believe them. He even faked cancer healings and other kind of healings in order to attract more people. He was a deceiver. Those kind of people are still with us today. Oh, they're not doing the same methods. right? And they may not intend to do like the extreme damage that Jim Jones did but they still intend to lead the flock astray from Christ and the word of Christ they will present themselves as disciples of Christ and and some may not be teachers and that's why I'll go back and forth they may not all be false teachers they may be what are now known as influencers and they may they nowadays they don't even have to come into your physical group in order to influence you and lead you astray because of the internet and social media. You've got these influencers out there who give strong talk about following Christ and yet they are unconverted. So the takeaway is we must contend earnestly for the faith. We must not relent. And remember, the faith is the gospel and everything related to the gospel that you must believe to be saved. In Christ himself and all the implications of the gospel. So Jude wants us to know that in contending for the faith, you're going to end up contending with people that profess to be believers. But they are not. He's warning us. And so that means that all of us who have been born again by God uh, through faith in Jesus Christ must contend earnestly for the faith. This is not something just for pastors and elders. This is a letter to everybody. Contend for the faith. So the first identifying characteristic is that they're creepers. They're going to look like Christians, but they're not. Secondly, look at what Jude, where he goes next. He, he talks about them in their condemnation. So we're to take note of the condemnation of the creepers. You have the craftiness of the creepers and now the condemnation of the creepers. He says there in verse four, speaking of the creepers, he said, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Now, these are spiritual terrorists. They snuck in, caught the church unaware. They're in the midst of the church. But what Jude wants Christians to know, he wants you to know, is that while the creepers might be a surprise to you, they're not to God. They're just not at all. God has long foretold of their arrival. And not only has he long foretold of their arrival, but he has foretold of their condemnation. The phrase beforehand marked out is, is a compound Greek verb. that really means just to write beforehand, something written beforehand. And, and some Bi- Bible translations use the word designated. I think the King James Version uses the word ordained. They were ordained to this end. And there are people who make a case that the writing that Jude is talking about is the eternal plan of God, that he... He ordained some to be saved, and He ordained some not to be saved. Right? And that's why the King James Version kind of goes with the idea or concept of ordained. Right? So that, that God passes over some and lets them face just judgment it is a, a doctrine that we call reprobation. Reprobation is part of the doctrine of election. So election means that God determined beforehand all those who would be saved. The positive side of that is that there are those who are um, saved, the elect. And I I guess I correct myself. The the overarching doctrine is, is the doctrine of predestination. And the positive side of predestination is election. The negative side of predestination is reprobation. So I believe that reprobation is a biblical doctrine. But I don't think that's what Jude is talking about here. Number one, because the word that's used. He he uses a verb that talks about something written beforehand. And in every other use of that term in the New Testament, it talks about something physically written. Like Paul writing to a church, for example. Um, the, The context of those other passages shows that Paul is talking about something written. A physical letter that he has written. So there's nothing in the context that talk about that, that helps us to, to indicate that, that God is talking about uh, the idea of, of ordaining someone to condemnation. So again, reprobation is a biblical doctrine. I just don't think that's what Jude is talking about here. What is he talking about? He's talking that simply that God has identified these false teachers, false Christians long ago. He's, he told the church they're going to come in fact he told he he told his saints, even in the Old Testament, that these people were coming and now they're here. And our English translation uses the word there he says, for those who were marked at, that that were long beforehand, marked out for this condemnation. The word long kind of implies that it was a, a long time ago. Actually the, the Greek word can be used for a relatively short period of time ago. It's used that way in the New Testament. But it certainly implies that, that the prophecies that Jude had in mind were at least the Old Testament prophecies. Some make the case that Jude had a copy of the letter of Second Peter and that he was using uh, that letter as kind of a reference. And so in the, in the letter of 2 Peter, Peter talks about the condemnation of the false teachers so that Jude perhaps had that in mind. But he was for sure talking about the Old Testament prophecies, the ancient prophecies that uh, God gave His people about false teachers. One of those, let me just read it to you, is in Isaiah 8, verses 20 to 22. There, uh, the Scriptures say, "...to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, that is no future. And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and hungry, and it will be that when they are hungry, they will be angry and curse their king and their God as they face upward. They will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. They will be banished into darkness. Also speaking of those who profess to know God, but by their deeds and I am. Zephaniah 1 4, verses 4 to 6 tell us this. This is God speaking. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off the remnant of Baal in, from this place. Baal is a false god. should not have been at all. Nobody worshiping Baal should have been in Jerusalem. That shows you how corrupt things have come. That's how the false teachers have come in and led believers away from true worship. He says, I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests, among along with the priest, and those who worship on the housetops the host of heaven, and those who worship and swear to Yahweh, and yet swear to Milcom, another false God. See so yeah, the how double faced they are? They're saying they worship God, Yahweh, the true God, but they're also worshiping a false God. And he says, Those who have turned back from following Yahweh, and those who have not sought Yahweh or inquired of him god of promises judgment and in in Jude Jude says that these creepers were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation and, and notice he uses the word this right that word this normally would point to something that has already been mentioned but if you look in verses 1 to 3 Jude doesn't actually mention any kind of judgment or condemnation some people say it's implied by contending for the faith but that seems to be a bit of a stretch. So it seems like that Jude is pointing forward with this, this condemnation. What condemnation? Verses 5 to 7. And and, and we'll get into those in, in future weeks. He says, There I desire to remind you that though you know all things, once for all that the Lord, having saved people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. There's their judgment. There's their condemnation. And he's another another example from angels and another one from Sodom and Gomorrah to show the certainty of this judgment. That's, that's really why, why Jude mentions that. That's the point we need to understand. We need to, st- to behold the condemnation of these creepers, right? They're in our midst. They're seeking to lead astray some. They're seeking to destroy the Lord's church. They're, they're seeking to to corrupt the Lord's church. That the Lord will ensure that his condemnation falls upon them. There's another passage that's very interesting in this light. I want to turn to in Deuteronomy. So if you would turn to Deuteronomy. The fifth book in your Bible. Deuteronomy. Turn to chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. You can see that this idea of unbelievers being amongst believers. But yet they look like believers, leading others astray is really not new. God provided warning through Moses. So this is Moses' instruction from from the Lord, but through Moses to the people of Israel. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and a sign of the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Why that verse is so important. So you've got this prophet, this dreamer of dreams. He relays something to you that later actually happens. and It actually happens verifies in your mind that he's a prophet. And that prophet then goes against the word of God and tells you to do something that the word of God says not to do. That is to worship another God. You can worship Yahweh, just worship this other God too. Because, you know, the high king of heaven, he's a busy guy. He probably doesn't have time for you all the time. That's what they would reason in your mind. And he's saying, let's go worship this other guy. God's word says, do not do that. You have a prophet. He gave a prophecy, came to pass. What would our world do right now with a guy like that? Or a woman like that? Flock to them, right? Flock to them. They're not being discerning. They're not using the word of God that was given to them for discernment. To discern whether it was a true prophet or a false prophet. A true teacher or a false teacher. And and why does God do this? Why does God allow false teachers to mess with His church? You know, Muslims will often bring this up. Why is it That your God, is he so weak that he can't protect his church? Is he so weak? Is he impotent? No. God's word says why he did this. He says, I am doing this to test you. This is your test. And I'm seeing if you will serve me with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Are you going to rely on my word and my word alone? Or are you going to believe someone else that goes against my word? It's the same error that Adam and Eve kind of failed to test. They didn't cling to the word of God when this convincing, very crafty creature came to convince them that another way is, well, wiser than, than God's plan. That same stuff goes on today, beloved. You must hold to the Word of God. You must realize that these creepers are in the church and they're serving God's purpose. They don't know that. But they're serving God's purpose. He is using them, right, to sift the wheat from the chaff within His church. Now, He knows all that already. This, This is a... This is a a process that he uses really for our benefit eh, to strengthen us, those who have genuine faith in Christ. This isn't, the problem of creepers isn't a New Testament problem. It isn't an Old Testament problem. It's a perennial problem. They're here. We cannot remove them. God will eventually. Their condemnation is sure, but for now God is using them within the church for his glory. To to show who is part of the true church and who is not. Paul instructed Titus and all pastors to silence such men. Just like in the Old Testament, they were commanded to kill that prophet. If, they, if that prophet, even though he had said something that actually came to pass, they were to kill that prophet because that prophet had incited rebellion against the Lord. Now today, we're not doing that. We're not authorized to kill false prophets. The Lord doesn't need our help with that. We're in a different era in a different time. But he does tell pastors and elders to silence such men. And you are to help your pastors silence such men by not giving such men and women a platform in your life. Don't give them a platform. You you can even look at their lives and say, well, he's, he says some things that are true. She said some things that really spoke to my heart and really, was, really, really helped me to grow in Christ. You start justifying what you're listening to based on that and you're in trouble. You go back to the word of God. Even Paul, Paul didn't have a hard time with that. Paul, when he was ministering to the Bereans, right, he preached the gospel to them and they checked it out in the Word of God. They looked at the scriptures, which mean the Old Testament scriptures, and they verified that what Paul was saying about this Christ and the gospel was actually in agreement with the Old Testament prophecies. And the Holy Spirit calls them in Acts. He says they're more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica and others that that just that, that didn't compare to the scriptures. They just went with their kind of their gut feeling with tradition. But in Titus 1, Paul exhorts Titus, commands Titus to silence such men. Paul says, therefore, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, that is, of the the Jews, who must be silenced. They must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. These aren't just teachers who are teaching something wrong. Just, they're not teachers who are teaching something that's that's a mistake or an error. No teacher is perfect. I have said things um, in the past that I corrected myself later, and, and that probably will continue because I'm not infallible. I try to study the Word of God as best I can, but I don't teach 100% accurate. So you should take what I say to the Word of God. Don't believe something just because I said it. Take it to the Word of God. The Word of God says it, then you better believe it and you better do it. But we are called to silence such people. They must be confronted. They must be removed from local churches. But again, most of these people are operating in stealth mode. Sometimes they get exposed, but often they operate in stealth mode. Right? And there's just little tidbits, but whatever you hear, Contending for the faith means take what you hear, take it to the word of God, make sure that it's accurate. So the second identifying characteristic is their their condemnation. The third. The third uh, identifying characteristic is simply one word that shows us the character of the creepers. That's the third point, the character of the creepers. They are ungodly persons, ungodly persons. So here, Jude, through the Holy Spirit, is giving us the diagnosis. Certain persons crept in, unnoticed, their condemnation is sure. God knew they were there, although it's a surprise to us, not a surprise to God. The Jude is exposing their hearts, their spiritual condition. They are ungodly persons. That's why we can say so affirmatively that they are not among the redeemed. They are not saved. They are not genuine Christians. This is their spiritual diagnosis. What does it mean to be an ungodly person? An ungodly person violates the parameters that God has established for a proper relationship uh, with Him in the way that we could have a, a proper relationship with Him. An ungodly person is irreverent which means they lack reverence for God internally and externally. Externally they're going to show uh, some form of reverence to God or else they couldn't creep in unnoticed. But an ungodly person is one that really is at war with God. When when someone is has reference, when someone has reference for God, then then you have a, a feeling or an attitude of deep respect for God. You you love him, you, you long to obey him, even even when you know you don't do it perfectly, because none of us do. We're we're in the battle, we're all in the process of sanctification. So even when you sin, you hate that you sin and you confess that to him. You go back to our Lord. But an ungodly person doesn't really care about God. Again, they'll give semblance. They'll show uh, through their lips or, or life some semblance of wanting to respect God. But that's not really where their heart is at. Keep in mind, this disrespect is not the kind of disrespect, this ungodliness is not the same type of ungodliness that an atheist would show. An atheist is like out in the open with his disrespect for God. These people are hidden. Their disrespect, their ungodliness, their irreverence is, is hidden. And that's a great danger that, that the church faces today. In fact, it's it's a much greater danger than the people who are out there. Like that are, that are false teachers. Like, I'm not very concerned that you guys might go join the Jehovah's Witnesses or that you might go become a Mormon. Because those are so blatantly anti-biblical Christ, you're not very tempted to fall for their schemes. They try to do that when they come to your door. If they are deceiving you. They are giving, they're trying to make themselves seem like Christians. The Mormons are really pushing for that right now. They're pushing to make you think that they're Christians. And they're using that title now of themselves. They are not. But those aren't the most dangerous people. The most dangerous people to you are the ones who appear to be Christians and yet are not. And there are many false teachers. The internet has really enabled. The internet has a lot of good things. I'm not anti-internet. I use it all the time. But you must have a guard on what you read And a guard on what you listen to, what you watch, because it's so easy for you to be led astray. And again, you're thinking, oh, I'll know, I'll know, I'll know when I see it. No, you won't. Yes, there are some creepers that really look creepy, and you'll stay away from them. I have no doubt about that. But the most dangerous ones are disguised so well that often we don't know who they are. They will be revealed. time and truth always go together. Give it enough time. the truth will come out. Okay? But often people don't give it enough time. They follow someone and you know even if the person isn't um, uh, going to lead them to commit suicide like the Jonestown people, uh, they're going their, their bad doctrine is going to be destructive in your life because okay? good doctrine brings spiritual healthiness. Spiritual vitality. Bad doctrine brings sickness. So, just because uh, someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean they are. Now, this isn't a call to be skeptical of like, everybody you meet. That's not what that's not what Jude is saying. He's saying take what you hear and you see back to the Word of God. And where there's a disconnect, hey, this person's you know they seem godly. Hey, I, I, I've kind of I've learned a lot from them and I've benefited from them, but. But they're saying something that that doesn't line up with the word of God. Most in Christianity today just kind of ignore that. They just say, well, I guess God's talking to him, speaking to him, which is not the case at all. If God were to speak, he would never violate his word. I don't believe he's speaking today directly in that kind of prophetic sense. But if he did? It would complete, complete, agree completely with what has already come beforehand. That's what Jude says, right? This is, this, this faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. It's once for all handed down. It's not going to change. There's not going to be a new discovery. There's not going to be uh, a new Messiah. So, all the people that follow Joseph Smith and, you know, all these, there's a long line of spiritual leaders that claim to be the Messiah or Messiah like. They're all false. They're all deceivers. They're not saved. They're leading people astray. They are creepers. They are creepers. Now, when, the, when you confront the creepers and say, well, I can't follow you here because the word of God doesn't say it, they are going to get in your face. They're going to challenge you. And again, I'll repeat myself. They're going to say, judge not, lest you be judged. Okay? You notice how people are responding to any kind of criticism about the Ashbury revival? And I'll use scare quotes, not because I doubt, but just because I have... I have Uh, skepticism. Praise God if he's actually working there in people's lives to bringing people to faith in Christ and growing them and maturing them. But a certain amount of skepticism is very healthy. It shows you're taking things back to the Word of God. And that's what we must do. And anybody that criticizes you for just saying, oh, you know, for, for showing that kind of discernment is is somebody you should not listen to or trust. Because they're just wanting you to believe them. Why? Because they said it. Oh, trust me. I'm so earnest. I say it a little bit mockingly, but, but they'll be that earnest. But they're that earnestly wrong. Beloved, these are ungodly persons. Ungodly persons. Scripture gives us a picture of the ungodly person who proclaims to be godly in Proverbs. Let's listen in Proverbs 26, beginning verse 23. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are fiery lips and an evil heart. So someone who has a very loving uh, lips, they're saying, hey, I really love you, but inside they have an evil heart. That's like taking a plain common pot and putting silver over it. Proverbs continues, he who hates disguises it with his lips, but he sets up deceit within himself. Not only is he deceiving, but he himself is deceived. When he makes his voice gracious, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his evil will be revealed in the assembly. The Lord sees the heart. He's saying, watch out for those on your midst. Who say they're believers but really aren't. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah 29. I'll read Isaiah 29 verses 13 and 14. And this passage is quoted by Jesus. Then the Lord said. Because his people draw near, draw near with their mouth. And honor me with their lips. But they remove their hearts far from me. And fear of me is in the command of men. Learned by rote. Meaning they didn't really mean it head knowledge therefore behold I once again I will once again deal marvelously with this people wondrously marvelous and the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden the amazing thing that Jesus said he would do God said he would do is that he is going to take those who appear to be the most religious and simply pass them by they are not going to find heaven they are not part of the kingdom of God the discerning, all those who look so discerning, really aren't discerning. He makes them look like fools in the end. And again, Jesus quoted that passage in Isaiah in talking about the um, scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23. In Ma- Matthew 23, Jesus uh, hits this head-on. He says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs." which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In this way, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus knew the diagnosis. Now, obviously, only God knows someone's heart. You you don't know that. Even when you have going to have a hunch, right? you don't know that. Only God can see the heart. But God has given us the word of God. We will not Violate the Word of God or go against the Word of God. And the the fourth kind of um, identifying characteristic that Jude gives us is that the conduct of these creepers will be manifested. Eventually, given enough time, these creepers will identify themselves through their conduct. They're going to slip up. And they're going to reveal themselves because they can't help it. That's just who they are. Look at the last part of verse 4. To take note of the conduct of these creepers. And Jude uses two different phrases to describe this. He says, He says there um, in Jude 4, those who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So, two, two phrases. Jude identifies the crimes of these creepers as. Manifested in their conduct is what they do, not what they say. The phrase, the grace of our God, refers to the grace that God freely gives to all who believe in Him through Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, it's the only way that anybody is ever saved is through God's grace. And, it's, and a gift of salvation comes through his, his grace. And we readily affirm that. There's not a single thing anybody can do to earn their salvation. Not a single thing. But these people are doing something with the grace of God that God never intended. If you look at Jude 4, they're taking the grace of God and turning it or perverting it into licentiousness or sensuality. That is a perversion of the grace of God. You know what the purpose of the grace of God is? We read about it in Titus 2. God's very clear about this. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, <clears throat> that as God's grace is instructing us, uh, that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, a, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. So the grace of God leads us to repentance. The grace of God leads us to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly passions, and, and to follow Christ. And even Jesus purified himself that we might be a possession uh, 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 for his possession. He redeemed us to, to purify us that we will be zealous for good deeds, right? for living in a godly way, not an ungodly way. let me just say that repentance, which is a 180 degree turn away from whatever sin you're committing, 180 degree turn away from that, in your lifestyle, not just in your mind, is a critical manifestation of true saving faith. Repentance is a critical manifestation of true saving faith. Repentance doesn't save you. Because then that would be a work. You're saved by grace, which comes through faith in Christ. And even that faith is not of yourselves so that you won't boast. That faith is a gift. So even that faith is a gra- comes through grace. But having said that, the grace of God leads us to a change of lifestyle. And therefore, repentance is a critical part of true saving faith. Show me someone who hasn't repented of their sins. Who is still living in their sins. And I'll show you an unbeliever. That's how you identify them. If you think these are too strong. And some may. Because there are churches today. Who teach something. That, that teach the, the, the gospel can be believed. and 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 there, there doesn't need to be a lifestyle change. But Jesus himself emphasize the need for repentance listen to listen to his words uh, or words from mark uh, chapter one but talking about jesus i'll quote jesus now after john had been delivered into custody jesus came into galilee preaching the gospel of god notice that he's preaching the gospel of god he's preaching god's grace how is it summarized this is how jesus summarized it saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel Repent and believe. Okay? Repent and believe. Right? Believe is faith. Those are like Siamese twins. Inseparable. If you imagine salvation as a priceless coin, repentance is one side of it. Faith is the other side of it. You can't have one without the other. Try to separate one face of the coin you destroy it. Okay? Matthew 4 gives us a similar account from that time jesus began to preach and say repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand he didn't even say believe he just said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand right? repent is so encapsulized belief that he didn't even always say that he just said repent repent and we and could show other verses like this but there's one one more i want to give you in Acts seventeen thirty uh, verses 30 and 31 so as a quotation of paul when when he is is, uh, giving a prophecy that all people should turn to Christ. Listen to his words, I'll read it. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone, everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, that is the man Jesus, whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. So even the apostle of grace Paul, the apostle Paul, summarized the entire gospel command as to repent. And he was the one that wrote Ephesians and about how we're just saved by grace and faith alone. God calls people out of darkness into his marvelous light. He is not calling us to work salvation. Some people misunderstand Jesus about that. Jesus is not calling people to a works-based salvation in which you put on repentance in order to be saved. That's not it. You'll never repent enough. Your repentance won't be pure enough. It won't be thorough enough. No. The only way we're saved is by believing in Jesus Christ. And with that will come repentance. So today you might be sitting here thinking, well, I believed, but... like my sin and you haven't turned from it don't be fooled into thinking that you're a believer without repentance again repentance doesn't save you but repentance shows that you have been changed by God that you have been converted understand that when the gospel is preached the devil goes immediately to work to sow seeds among the wheat he sows his seeds he goes to work to cause you to doubt God's word he goes to work to try to convince you that you need to do something to be saved. Or, he goes to work to say, you know, I know you want to follow Christ, but you know, it doesn't really matter how you live. Now, when the gospel is preached, there, there are many errors that you can fall into, but there's two big ditches on either side of the gospel. One we're will call um, legalism. That is the concept that you have to do something, you have to add to the gospel something. That's Christ plus works, Christ plus uh, Mosaic law, Christ plus something. And the Word of God is very clear about that. The early church dealt with that in Acts 15. Say, no, it's just Christ. You try to add Christ to something, it's a, another gospel. And that, that is a, that's a perennial error, it's still around. But it's not the predominant error of our times. And if you look at Scripture, as Scripture forecasts the future. It's not the predominant heir of the future. The prominent heir of the future is the one that, that Jude is dealing with here, turning the grace of our God into licentiousness. In other words, there you get people who are saying that the grace of God becomes a, a license to sin. They wouldn't put it in those terms. They say, God has forgiven me. Of all my sins. So therefore it really doesn't matter. Whether. I do this or I do that. If God's forgiven all my sins. Past, present, and future. Which is true. right? Why does it matter how I live? Can I, can I just live however way I want to? Paul deals with this. And he, his argument is. There were people in his day that said. Well if, if grace abounds. Where there's sin. Is it okay. If we. Sin so that grace may abound? What does Paul say? May it never be. It's the strongest, most emphatic way to say no in Greek. No way. It's clear. And yet. The creepers, because they're not converted, can't control themselves, so they're looking for justification for their behavior. Beloved, sensuality is not to be part of the Christian's life. And yet, what characterizes the Christian church today more than anything else? Sensual living. It's that kind of lie that they're living to say that they can, they can be a homosexual and a Christian or I can be transgender and a Christian or I can be an adulterer and a Christian no one's said that yet I don't think but that's coming it's crazy do you think the gospel can come into someone's life and there's no change I'll, I'll reuse an illustration I've, made, I've done, used before. Can you imagine being hit by a Mack truck at 45 miles an hour when you're crossing the road, and you just getting up, brushing off, and say, "I'm fine, no day, no change." Of course not. I mean, it's like it's like a 747 crashing from the sky on top of your house, and your house being untouched, unfazed. Of course not. There's no way that someone can be born again by God, have the Holy Spirit within them, to be in Christ and be unchanged. There's just no way. So when people say that, even if they say it earnestly, don't believe them because the Word of God says something different and you trust the Word of God. Oh, beloved, so, so not, not only were these creepers perverting the grace of God look at look at me the, the other thing they were doing this again this conduct i just have to be brief here that they, they were denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ and notice in both places the, gray, the our. he says the grace of our God and denying our only master so jude is is calling the christian to say these are these are real truths, these are our truths, and these creepers are misusing them and abusing them. And the second conduct is really just outward rebellion. They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Each one of these terms is significant. Each one of these terms probably represents a denial in some fashion in these creeps' lives. But the word master there is is the Greek word despotos. And I say that because it's similar to our Greek word despot. Now, in English, in our times, despot is a bad thing, right? We We don't talk about someone being you know, praising them for being a despot, unless you're really wicked. But we're not dealing with that just today. But the word despot in Greek just means one who is the guy in charge. He is the proprietor. He has ultimate authority because he owns everything. And if you work for somebody, like a private business, you just do what they ask you to do. Why? Because they own the place and they pay your salary. So he can, they can do things the way they want to do them, like do business the way they want to do business. So that's the term that's meant here. God is the sole proprietor of the earth and of our lives. He created us; he gets to call the shots, master in the sense, of, in the global sense. The, the next term, Lord, is the Greek word kurios, which can be translated master, but it's it's really pointing uh to the fact that he's he's the he's the chief. He's he's the one we follow. And in many contexts in the New Testament, that word kurios, when it's used with Jesus, is actually pointing to something more significant than he's just our Lord, that is that we're supposed to obey him. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is actually God, because Kurios is used in the New Testament the same way that Yahweh is used in the Old Testament. Yahweh is the Old Testament name of God. And the New Testament writers very intentionally attribute that to Christ with the Greek term kurios. Okay, so when someone says that Jesus is Lord, they're not just saying he's the boss. Okay, those of the Christian faith are saying he's the boss and he is God. So in some way, these creepers were denying the authority of Jesus as God, as ruler, as as Savior, you look at the other terms of his name, Jesus. Really, he was named Jesus because he's the Savior of his people. So they they perhaps were corrupting that and didn't even believe in Jesus as the Savior. But of course, they would give lip service to this. And then Christ is, the, is not Jesus' last name. It is a title for Messiah, showing that he's long prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. All this is combined to say these people are living however they wanted to, lawlessly. These people were living without, uh, outside the authority of Jesus, and there are people like that today. Although it's not as popular as it once was, but there's a distortion of the gospel that says uh, you can receive Jesus as Savior and not receive Him as Lord, like, and and. There's a lot of misunderstandings surrounding this, but just understand that guard against that. You can't separate Christ into his different offices. You can't separate him into like, well, he's Lord, he's Savior, um, he's prophet, he's priest, he's king. You know, you can't say, well, I'll accept the Jesus who's the Savior because I like that Jesus, but I'm not going to accept the Jesus who's the judge. Or I'm not going to accept Jesus who's the Lord that actually tells me what to do with it. You can't do that. It's all or nothing, beloved. It's all or nothing. We don't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. So when you come to faith, you believe and you acknowledge that He is Lord. And none of us live completely consistent with that allegiance of faith. I'll be the first to admit that. Because any little sin is ultimately rebellion against God. But the desire of our heart is that we want to obey our Lord and our God. So, Know know that the creepers are out there. You must be on guard, comparing everything you hear with the word of God. And that's how you protect yourself. That's how you arm yourself. That's how you carry out the command that God tells you to carry out and contending earnestly for the faith. The creepers are here. We must contend for the faith. Or our church will become another victim in a long list of victims of these creatures. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are thankful that you love us so much that you've given us your word to tell us about hard things like we've heard today, that there are those among us who profess to love Christ, but they really don't. Lord God, we long for heaven, because in heaven we will see you In heaven, we will not wrestle wrestle with our own sins. And there will not be any false believers, false teachers in heaven. You are the Lord. You are the judge. You are love. Your grace has been poured out abundantly on us to carry us through this storm. Oh, Lord, help us to have the discernment that we need to turn to your word and be guided by your word. So that even if an angel from heaven were to come, tell us another gospel that we would not believe them. But we would cling to your written word once for all delivered to the saints. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.com dot o-r-g. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.